the topic for the evening's talk tonight is accepting one's experience while wanting to change. So we've been practicing some methods, mindfulness, with the hope of cultivating valuable qualities of mind, concentration, connection with our experience. We've done some loving-kindness practice, forgiveness, um, actually for each of the buildings. There's a practice, metta, loving-kindness, mudita, cultivating joy, karuna, cultivating compassion, upeka, cultivating equanimity. Each of these buildings that we live in actually is a um, practice. It's like a way of constructing a building in our minds. At the same time, from the very beginning, every time we've emphasized the importance of accepting what's actually happening. So a reasonable question arises. Wait a minute. Is this coherent? Is it a joke? <laughs> We're radically accepting something while wanting to change, to improve, to grow. If we put it abstractly, it can be made to seem like a puzzle. There is an abstract explanation, which I'll give. But the more important part of it is seeing how this puzzle factors into our practice. And so I'd like to talk about this tonight. The abstract resolution of the puzzle is simply that in every moment of experience, we actually do radically accept what's happening. We're fully open to it. And yet, we not only exist at moments, but we exist over time. And as we exist over time, we can notice patterns. And we can be intelligent about those patterns. And we can notice when there are patterns that are not helpful, that are leading to suffering, that are interfering with happiness. Most of us who end up in retreats like this do so because we are aware of uh, ways in which we would like to change. My sense of the Buddha is that he was a man who had very deep yearnings, very high aspirations, and was highly motivated to change, to grow, to improve. We all probably have a story somewhat along those lines. My own story, for what it's worth, uh, involves uh, being a graduate student uh, in Helsinki. I was over there on a grant for a year and a half in the early 80s. And at that time, um, the uh, former Soviet Union had placed intermediate range missiles in Eastern Europe. And the US was placing intermediate range missiles in Western Europe. 
and all of Europe was aware of what was being set up to happen, which is that the superpowers were setting it up to fight a nuclear war in Europe. And there was quite a lot of fear, indignation, anger, uh, not merely among normally politically active people, but entire population. And I was, so I was living in Finland, and as an American, I became aware of what was happening and became upset, angry uh, about it. And I noticed, somehow I had the wherewithal to notice that the way that I was responding was not particularly promising relative to the sort of world that I wanted to be in. And so this was one motivation for me to uh, look into meditation. My mind was angry, tight, resistant, self-righteous, um, and so forth. At the same time, um, a lot of good things were happening for me. I was beginning to succeed in philosophy. The fact that I had got the grant meant something. I uh, had begun doing yoga and just kind of opening to the exquisite pleasures that can come in doing yoga. Um, there were other things that were good that were happening for me. And around these good things, I also noticed a sort of tightness so that the more good things that were happening for me, there was an increasing sort of like tightness, needing it to be that way, needing more. And so for me, the experience with yoga was just like, wow, these are really pleasurable states. Uh, and I needed them. A day wasn't quite right unless I got them. And again, I had the wherewithal to like, it's not quite right. So again, it was a motivation to look into meditation. I wanted to change. I was actually pretty miserable. So even though good things were happening, and there's also a, uh, a woman involved in this story. I'm not going to tell you everything. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it was actually a good thing um, for a while. I was miserable, even though things were pretty good. The fact that I could be aware politically was just a function of my health and intelligence. Um, but nonetheless, there were, I was quite aware that I was not happy, that the anger that I had connected with the political stuff was not likely to be very useful, and that the way I was going about bringing pleasure into my life had an ele element of tightness um, that, that was worth looking, looking into. So I had a motivation to just explore my own mind and my own experience. And 
I was fortunate to, I feel, to come across uh, basic instructions very similar to what we're doing this week. Uh, in fact, a friend, um, the girlfriend, um, had, had some, had a book, uh, Jack Cornfield's book, Living Buddhist Masters. And we were, uh, before I went to Finland, she had read me this while we'd travel in a car. She read the instructions. This is a book that contains the basic beginning instructions from lots of different Asian teachers. And uh, she read the instructions. She said, you might like this. She read the instructions from Mahasi Sayada, uh, which are the basic instructions we work with here, uh, involving just bringing attention to the breath, to walking, to eating, to movement, ordinary movements, and so forth. And I was like, wow, people really do that. <laughs> I was like, wow. I was just a bit skeptical about, about it, but my curiosity was piqued. And uh, so I began practicing it on my own. And then about a year later, I uh, was in a retreat near Stockholm for seven days, much like this one. So what I would like to do is talk about some basic principles of uh, Buddhist psychology. There's a model that's, that's useful, like putting our experience under a microscope in order to think precisely about uh, the ways in which we can hope to change and, the, and in the ways in which we cannot hope to change. And so we can be realistic about the ways in which we can improve and grow and, um, and so forth to address this question in a practical way. So the, the basic structure of Buddhist psychology that's relevant here puts the, the spotlight on, the, on a moment of, of conscious experience and breaks it down, saying that there is a, an element of awareness in each moment. There's a mind a mind of awareness, maybe colored or flavored in a certain way. There's an object of awareness. These objects come from a relatively few categories, the, the, the senses and thoughts. So the senses are just tastes, smells, things we see, um, the, uh, the physical sensations, things we hear. Thoughts involve abstract thoughts in language, uh, visual images, uh, and so forth, mental objects. And in each moment of experience, there's a quality of feeling, of liking or disliking or being neutral about that object of consciousness. So there's a, there's a touch of pain or pleasure or a neutral feeling in each moment of experience. This is just a model. Uh, it's not um, drawn from brain science or, or physiology. It's drawn from our phenomenal experience. You can take it as a conjecture and look into it and see whether it makes sense. But the model is pretty interesting. 
because it's saying that in each moment of experience, we can break down what's happening to kind of the mind of awareness, an object, and this feeling tone, pain, pleasure, neutral. And so in the ordinary course of experience, just moment by moment, at that level of feeling tone, there's going to be a fluctuation over time. So there'll be a moment of some object meets consciousness. We like it. That's a moment of pleasure. Next moment, the object's gone. We liked it. Oh, pain. (laughs) Next moment, next bite. Oh, it's back. (laughs) Pleasure, right? Oh, it's kind of boring, neutral. So on this model, (laughs) on this model, there's a, a fast flow of experience. Just with this flow of feeling tone accompanying each moment of consciousness. Thumbs up, thumbs down, just like that. So it's an interesting model. And insofar as that model is true, it actually makes sense to try to arrange our experience so that we would get thumbs up, thumbs up, thumbs up, (laughs) all the way along, every moment. It's intelligent to do that. Uh, um, And we're constructed to try to do that. And so we can uh, imagine a project, the pure pleasure production project. No, the pure pleasure production and pain elimination project. <laughs> the P P P P E P. And one of the Buddha's main insights is that this project is doomed. <laughs> we are not going to succeed in the PPPPP. No matter what we do, we're not going to succeed in getting thumbs up every moment of experience. The pain comes as a natural part of the flow of consciousness of human beings. It is not part of the Buddhist's theory of enlightenment that we somehow figure out how to get pure pleasure. Uh, In a way, I think this is one of the Buddha's main insights because he was practicing, he practiced meditation. There were a lot of techniques being taught in India at his time. And he turned out to be pretty good at them. And these concentration practices, cultivating calm, stability, bliss, rapture in the body and so forth. And, um, uh, and, and they're highly pleasurable states. And indeed, we can cultivate them and indeed get a lot of pleasure in it. And so meditation can be extremely pleasurable. And yet the, the story of the Buddha, 
is that he was not satisfied even with these highly refined states because he discerned an element of suffering even in the midst of them. And um, the way I understand it is just that these states, even though they're refined and so forth, they're conditioned by certain activities, the activities of meditation. And so they're impermanent as conditioned states. You know, they'll fall apart when the conditions fall apart. And in any case, they're states of a human being who is vulnerable to um, pain, just the ordinary pains of um, illness, injury, vulnerability, uh, aging, dying, and so forth, loss. So, um, we tend to have habits that flow out of these moments of experience into other moments of experience. And so in response to pain, we do tend to have some habits. And many of these habits involve thoughts. So out of this, you know, moment by moment experience, there also is, of course, a flow of thoughts just bubbling up. Thoughts about whatever the hell you thought about all day. All right? Cows, <laughs> pie, baseball, I don't know. Our minds are so interesting. All right? And, um, Thought is highly involved in a process by virtue of which, in response to the feeling tone of a moment of experience, we go into suffering. So that when we, it's most clear when we do experience pain and then get tight about it and resist it and fight it. And also, it's quite clear when we notice thoughts arising from that experience of pain, such as the ones that we have been talking about all week. For instance, the thought that there's something wrong with me insofar as I'm feeling pain. (coughs) Excuse me. So on on this model, there's pain, and then there's suffering, and there's a distinction between those two. So in response to pain, we tend to go into states of resistance, rejection, tightening. And that's where, on this model, the suffering enters. So there's a kind of a weird story from the Buddha to illustrate this, which is involving an arrow, a person getting hit by an arrow. And that's like the normal pain that just arises by virtue of existing in a vulnerable human body and so forth. 
But then on this analogy, uh, one takes the bow and arrow and shoots oneself with, an, with another arrow. It's always kind of been mysterious to me how that would work. <laughs> but I think you just shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> uh, but the point is that in response to the first arrow, which is the normal pain, which we're not going to eliminate, no matter how much we work on that project of thumbs up, in response to that pain that occurs there, we tend to perpetuate a sort of suffering, which is the second arrow. And on this model, that is optional. Is that making sense? This is why we emphasize things like, uh, I think Diana mentioned the other night, that idea that when we're seeing something, it's just the seeing. Or when we're hearing something, it's just the hearing. Um, we might also say, in the feeling of pleasure, there's just the pleasure. Or in the feeling of pain, there's just the pain. And so when Deborah was introducing kind of that exercise, working with pain, she emphasized, we're just staying with the sensation, the feeling of the pain. We're not going into a story or an analysis of it. We're just staying with the sensation that's there and the, the liking, the disliking. And on this model, the most important practical piece is if we can just stay with the sensation and that feeling, the pain itself, then the mind is not going to go into suffering. But we often do, and we often have habits that, that take us right in there. It's like the second arrow. And thought is often implicated in that process. So thought is pretty amazing. We can think uh, about pretty much anything that we can conceptualize. And language is an amazing human faculty the way it works, the way children learn it so quickly. It's quite amazing. It's an incredible capacity. And yet, in this, on this picture, there are ways in which thoughts can be unwholesome. And basically what it boils down to is this distinction between wholesome and unwholesome thought basically boils down to whether or not thoughts are leading us into suffering or whether they're being useful in keeping us free from suffering or promoting our happiness. This is in a context where we're still keeping fixed that idea that we're not going to try to fix the thumbs up, thumbs down thing to get pure thumbs up. So even in a context where, yep, there will be pain, there will be loss, there will be heartbreak, can we pay attention to the thoughts that we have and discern whether they're actually helping us be happy even in the midst of a life that has pain? 
So the Buddha always emphasized the importance of thoughts and wholesome thoughts. So the Dhammapada uh, begins, all experience, this is one translation, all experience is preceded by thoughts, led by thoughts, made by thoughts. Speak or act with unwholesome thoughts and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. In another place, whatever states are unwholesome or partake of the unwholesome or pertain to the unwholesome, all these have thoughts as their forerunner. Thoughts arise as the first of them followed by the unwholesome states. Um, So, um, this basic distinction between wholesome and unwholesome thoughts. First of all, it's an invitation to pay attention. Like anything that we teach here, practice, it's like basically an invitation to look for yourself. Can you make sense of this distinction in your own experience? Are there thoughts or patterns of thoughts that strike you as intuitively unwholesome in the sense that, yeah, when they're operating, when they get triggered, however that might happen, they tend to keep me in a pattern of suffering in response to the difficulties of life. Are there thoughts or patterns of thoughts that actually seem to help me cope with difficulties, that help me be happy? In general, the breakdown in the Buddhist literature would be along the lines of unwholesome thoughts are greedy ones, hateful ones, deluded ones. The helpful ones would tend to be, the wholesome ones would tend to be thoughts of kindness, generosity, and so forth. Um, In Deborah's story last night about the Vipassana romance, she had, um, there were thoughts, desirous thoughts. Um, And I took it in her story that she noticed that they weren't helping her be happy. They were kind of looping in a way that that was not uh, enjoyable. talked a number of times here about this, the way in which we can take our own pain as indicative of something being wrong with me. Um, the idea that pain is somehow wrong would mean that somehow uh, I am wrong. Uh, and insofar as it means I am wrong in some way, it would seem to indicate that I need to do something to correct it. I need to fix something, make something right. And if we have that thought, then simply feeling into the pain, whether it's physical or emotional, can seem a bit frivolous or even a dereliction of duty. And interestingly, I would say that, yeah, Sometimes pain can have 
that sort of meaning. And so it can happen on retreats where there will be moments where I will feel regret or remorse in relation to some action or relationship or, uh, or something. And that pain can be informative. What it can do is just help us become more clear about the importance of our intentions and our actions, about the basic precepts, for instance. Um, so I think that there can be occasions where pain can lead us to a deeper appreciation of the importance of care and respect in our actions. But it also seems to me that we tend to way overgeneralize this. And so there's a great deal of physical and mental, emotional pain that doesn't have any meaning at all unless we're assuming something bizarre like I should be happy all the time or I should have pleasure all the time or I should be cheerful all the time or there's something wrong with me if I'm feeling bad. And uh, this is a sort of delusion that's rooted in the uh, PPPPEP. Right, in that idea that we actually can somehow succeed in being beings with pure pleasure every moment. Um, I was talking to my colleagues about this today at lunch. Um, so I guess I can tell you too. It's like yesterday afternoon I was in kind of for a while. Um, I went through this period where I was feeling kind of anxious, fearful, lonely uh, in relation to a relationship that I that began a couple months ago and it's been great um, and uh, kind of coming here meant kind of leaving this really intense beautiful situation in which we're bonding and getting closer and it's pretty wild and great and uh, <laughs> <laughs> And so yesterday afternoon, though, I was like anxious and like lonely and like, why am I here with these people? <laughs> <laughs> and um, it, it was like, it wasn't that funny. It was, <laughs> I was just wavering and unstable and... Um, they're also, I noticed it, and I probably noticed it because I was thinking about these ideas in this context, but it really was there. Like, there's something wrong with me. You know, it was in me, that sense of there's something wrong with me for feeling these emotions, for feeling these things. Um, and so this is a sort of assumption that is rooted in thoughts, and if we look at it, we can see it's not wholesome. These are normal states, especially given the good things that were happening before I came here. It's totally normal to feel these things. There's nothing wrong with me. These are just, it came and it went. These were states, they were painful, 
They were not enjoyable. They were thumbs down, right? I don't want to cultivate them, but they're, they're perfectly normal. They come with the territory of close relationships. So reviewing what we've covered so far, uh, there's a simple model. If we put the microscope on our experience, we can look into this. Like moment by moment, there's awareness with an object, a feeling tone of pain or pleasure, liking, disliking. And then often thoughts will be working to go from that moment into another moment where we're actually suffering because of the relationship we have to the pain, especially. And so it raises the question of working with unwholesome thoughts and what to do. And there's a, a sutra where the Buddha talked about um, working with unwholesome thoughts, in the Majjhima Nikaya number 20. Um, basically, it's undercutting the causal influence of unwholesome thoughts and how to do it. And so I'll just talk about that for a few minutes. The basic idea is that when we notice that a thought or a, a mental habit or a pattern of thought is unwholesome, it's not helping. Like, for instance, that assumption that there's something wrong with me if I'm feeling pain. Then we can actually intervene. We can cultivate minds that have a greater tendency to generate thoughts that are appropriate to wisdom and liberation and happiness. It's not necessary for us to be buffeted around by these thoughts. It's kind of similar to the, what came up this morning about the uh, experience of anger in connection with, well, when we accept the emotion, are we also kind of accepting the whole situation? And Diana said, no, not necessarily. We don't have to be doormats. So you said, we don't have to be, we don't have to be doormats right? If we can experience the anger, but we also can be intelligent. Same way here. We don't have to be sort of doormats to our own thoughts when they're not helpful. So a couple of, a few, here's some suggestions from this sutra. Uh, first of all, we would bring the same, initially bring the same open acceptance to these thoughts to any thought. So that's going to be our primary orientation. So just as we did the raining exercise this morning with emotions, we can do that also with thoughts, with patterns of thoughts. Even when we are kind of aware this is not probably a mental habit that's so useful, our first approach can be simply accepting it, being aware of it. Um, we'll often notice it repeating itself. And when we notice it repeating itself several times, then it can be useful to consciously think about an intervention. And one way to do that is simply to redirect the attention. This is, we've been practicing, practicing this from the beginning here. Just redirect the attention to something neutral, simple, like the breath, like the sensations in the feet, like the hands, or the feet, the way we did when we were practicing with emotions. 
just turning the attention precisely yet gently away to something neutral. Um, the qualities of mind there are those of connecting the attention, sustaining the attention. So we're doing that with the breath. It's like washing the windows. Uh, someone, Jennifer, I think, this morning, was talking about washing these windows. It's just like when we connect with the breath, it's just like we're placing the cloth on the window, rubbing the window, uh, cleaning it. Likewise with the breath, placing the attention, sustaining it there. It's a real, these are mental activities. We taka, we chara in the Pali, just aiming or connecting and sustaining attention. That is the key for cultivating this calmness and stability. And so with troublesome, unwholesome patterns of thought, just turn, redirecting the attention, making, and so that's why we emphasize this sort of basic practice. Another uh, strategy is replacing the unwholesome thought. So um, if we're plagued with tanha, with that obsessive desire that uh, Deborah talked about, uh, another way to, to kind of replace that thought is simply to reflect on the impermanence of the situation. Try that. Uh, with thoughts of hatred or irritation, anger, um, we can consciously replace those thoughts with thoughts of kindness, friendliness, generosity. Uh, I was chair of my department for a few years in the philosophy department and about 15 colleagues and 50 graduate students. There's a lot going on. And during those years, I uh, lived about 20 miles from the campus and so I got in the habit of doing loving-kindness practice, driving to the campus, eyes open and so forth. <laughs> and when we do it, you know, we start with, with someone for, for whom it's really easy to feel appreciation. And then we can bring it in for ourselves and then friends. And when we get used to it, and get resilient and strong with it, we can actually bring to mind people who are difficult. And in practicing this, we would start with them, kind of the, those that are not too difficult, but then we can actually practice it uh, with really difficult people too. And uh, so when I drive in, I would kind of have a routine and there was like a certain point where I would get to the difficult person who would change from day to day but it would, someone would normally come to mind that I was anticipating a meeting with or who had been rather irritating or whatever. And it was often the same guy, one of my colleagues. And, um, you know, he just had uh, a lot of anger and, and was an irritating person, um, and, but liked a lot of attention. And so often I was kind of tense, anxious, around him, or in the thought of him. And so he often would come to mind as the difficult person for the day. And so in practicing here, I would just think of something that I liked about him, which turned out to be not so hard. 
I actually did admire him. He was, he was a problem partly because he was so idealistic and he really wanted good things to happen. He was working hard to get graduate students from Central and Eastern Europe. You know, it was easy to think of something that I admired and appreciated about him. And just a few moments of reflection, you know, may you be happy, just kind of something good about him, a few moments of may you be happy would shift my whole orientation so that the, the, this anxiety, tension, irritation, anger, fear that might be associated with him because of what I anticipated for that day would at least be softened and it often would just dissipate and kind of be replaced by a sort of confidence and kind of a much wider open awareness of the situation. And of all the things I did that for during those four years, this sort of exercise was probably the most practical. And it's an example, from my experience, of kind of replacing the thoughts of anxiety, fear, tension with a much more pleasant state of mind and a much more useful one. Another uh, method is simply reflecting on the results of engaging in these patterns or allowing these patterns to, to run ahead full steam. Do I want to be the sort of person that is this angry, that is generating these sorts of cruel thoughts or uh, so forth? Another um, method is simply relaxing the thoughts directly. This might happen just by using a label like thinking or judging. And so this method one can use. The Buddha, um, in talking about this idea of relaxing directly, uh, says, just as a man walking fast might consider, why am I walking fast? What if I walk slowly? And he would walk slowly. And he might consider, why am I walking slowly? What if I stand? And he might stand. Then he might consider, why am I standing? What if I sit? And he would sit. Then he might consider, why am I sitting? What if I lie down? And he would lie down. By doing so, he would substitute for each grosser posture one that was subtler. So too, when he gives attention to stilling the thought formations of those thoughts, then any unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hatred, with delusion, are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steadied, internally quieted, brought to singleness. Uh, the Buddha actually seemed to like this analogy of the shifting postures to, from the more um, active energy taking to the, to the subtler, more relaxed. So he uses it here in relation to just kind of noticing the thoughts and just kind of by virtue of noticing and thinking that, well, maybe it could be a little less intense. There's actually a shift. And he uses the same sort of analogy both for uh, deepening concentration and also for the the, uh, awakening of the heart, just shifting to a more relaxed posture. making sense? 
So these are some methods mentioned in this sutra, not all of them. Um, but the, the general idea is that we can be intelligent when we notice that there are patterns of thought which are not helpful. We can do so even in that context of radically accepting what's present when it is present. So what that would entail is we're not, if there is a thought present, first of all, thoughts are fast, right? They come and go quickly. So it hardly makes sense even to try to chase away a thought. They go so fast. So we might as well accept what's happening right now, even at the level of thoughts. And so there's, none of this is hedging on this idea that the core of mindfulness and even the mind trainings of kindness and compassion and so forth involve this sort of radical acceptance of what's actually happening when it's happening. In that respect, we are always beginning again. There's very little room, in my view, for concepts of progress. There are maps that involve progress and so forth, and they're interesting. But in actual practice, the heart of it is always beginning again with what's actually happening now. Whether it's in a sitting and 20 minutes have gone by and we haven't quite arrived yet, it doesn't matter what's happened before. Uh, in practicing with, with rain, you know, with the emotions as we did this morning. It doesn't matter too much what's happened up to that point. In the moment, we can recognize, accept, inquire, investigate into it, feel into it, not take it personally. These sort of suggestions have to do with when we notice that there, over time there are patterns of thought or that there are, we tend to have certain habits where, like uh, the example from when I'm driving to school and notice, wow, there's that tension around Ned again. It's easy to have that habit around Ned. Tension, ready to fight. Once he was in my office, and he was so angry. He goes, rah, 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 rah. And, and I was kind of calm because I'd done this. <laughs> and I realized that I better get angry or he's going to get angry because he's thinking I'm not taking him seriously. <laughs> so honestly, I just pretended I was angry. <laughs> I was just like, well, fuck you, get out of my office you now. <laughs> And he, and he was like, oh, yeah, you, you're right, you're right, absolutely. I, <laughs> so I'm not sure why, where that little fits. <laughs> so we tend to have habits that, um, that make this sort of advice about intervening with our thoughts, sort of risky advice, because again, we can overgeneralize. We can be too oriented to uh, try to control too much. Uh, but the truth is, in this practice, there's a beautiful balance. There's room for both. 
uh, in the history of, of Zen, uh, there's an amazing story um, uh, in, in China. So there's Chan there. Um, and the basic story is told in, this, in the Sutra of Huineng, which you can get and read, which I highly recommend. Uh, this person, Huineng, a peasant, he was a servant boy. He ended up in a temple. It just sort of ended up there. And the uh, master of the temple was getting old, so he's looking for the successor. And so the idea was people, if they thought they could qualify, they would write a poem on the wall. We could do that here. Like, if you want to teach tomorrow, we <laughs> write a poem on the wall. And so it's like there was one guy who was kind of like expected to be the successor. And he wrote his poem, Gata, on the wall, and it went like this. Our body is the Bodhi tree, and our mind a mirror bright. Carefully we wipe them hour by hour, and let no dust alight. So our body, the Bodhi tree, is the tree under which the Buddha was enlightened. So this poem is saying our body is the place, the place of action. Uh, our mind is like a mirror. We just keep wiping it carefully, moment by moment, paying attention to all the subtleties, accepting, and looking into it and feeling it, connecting, sustaining, like washing the window. The idea is, is related to what we've been practicing, that the body and mind are to be used as foundations for mindfulness. Uh, and there's a conception of freedom of mind and heart that comes from this sort of purification. And in the model that I described earlier, it's if just staying with the actual sensations, the actual feeling tone without going into, you know, the polishing would be just moment by moment, staying with the actual sensation, the actual feeling tone, not getting caught in these cycles of suffering. So that's like the polishing. So that's like, this poem sounds pretty good, right? Um, so the servant boy, Huing Nang, this is in the seventh century CE in China, offered this alternative poem on the wall. There is no Bodhi tree, nor stand of a mirror bright. Since all is void, where can the dust alight? The idea that there's some method you need to practice in order to be free, in order to be awake. Forget it. You don't need to polish the tree, polish the mirror, or the tree. <laughs> I don't know where, oh, the, uh, the tree, the Bodhi, there is no Bodhi tree, don't polish it. <laughs> where could the dust alight? It's like a conception. This conception is probably more useful to us, to most of us, than the, the, the conception that involves this intense scrutinizing and effort moment by moment. 
because we're already so oriented to work that way. And this is pointing to the radical freedom of the mind, of simple awareness in the present moment without any effort. It's right here. In any case, you know, this gave rise to two big schools of Zen. And both of these elements are part of mindfulness practice. So on the one hand, there is actually that kind of careful moment by moment polishing. It involves keeping track. It can involve keeping track of what's wholesome, what's not, intervening with the unwholesome and in, in working with these methods. And the other is just connecting, relaxing into the spacious, open mind, non-judgmental, non-conceptual, uh, where no methods are quite relevant at all. So one way to think about the ego is that it's striving for the good and it is intelligent to do that. But often that striving becomes a sort of tightening and there can be a release in the moment from that tightening. We don't have to go into those patterns. And so even when we're oriented to the good and to, to change, improvement, uh, can keep that orientation even without getting caught in tight cycles of striving. I did a long retreat at my house a few years ago, and during that retreat, it's kind of like Deborah's story last night. It was like when she lost the photo, and it kind of led to an opening of her heart. Uh, for me, there were many times where I would be, you know, I was alone most of the time, it's like I would go out and take a walk on the road and I'd see people in cars going places. Like, where are they going? You know, and what am I doing here? Am I just wasting my life doing this? And kind of get restless and uneasy and so forth. And then just settling in and noticing those emotions, practicing, using these methods. And again and again, noticing a shift, and I began thinking of it as a shift to not struggling or not striving. Just, and and in, those, in that shift was a confidence, a clarity, an intimacy, oddly, weirdly, that totally made sense of why I was doing that. Uh, in one place the Buddha talks about kindness as the... Uh, freedom of the heart. It says, kindness is the freedom of the heart. It shines, it glows, it blazes forth. Uh, um, Mohandas Gandhi, the um, effective advocate of nonviolence, effective not only in advocating nonviolence, but also effective in creating change real-world change, said, truth and nonviolence 
are as old as the hills. All I have done is to try to experiment with both on as vast a scale as I could. Likewise, mindful awareness, kindness, these are nothing new. Um, But a question for us is, on how vast a scale can we experiment with these things? Compassion involves a sort of vibration with pain. It's an opening of our heart to pain. And if we can open to our own pain without getting caught in tight resistance, if we can open to our own pain without suffering, then um, we have a chance of doing the same thing relative to pain around us in the world. Is it's possible to maybe accept the world as it is, even while wanting change and working for it. So let's just, without moving, let's just close our eyes for a second. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.